0: Let's pray and then we'll uh, look at this part of God's word. It'd be great if you could have the Bible open to Revelation chapter 12 and uh, that's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the chance we have to gather as your people this morning, gather around you as you've revealed yourself to us in your word. And we thank you that you have also given us your Holy Spirit so that we might understand what you have said and not just understand it but take it to heart to have lives that are shaped by your word our lives that are shaped by you. Lord, we pray this morning as we read it that we might become aware of the battle, of the struggle that we face as followers of you in this world. And Lord, help us to be prepared to engage in that struggle uh, with the tools that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin by reading you a letter. As usual, Lord Emperor, I'm referring to you any issues I'm not sure of. I've never investigated Christians before, so I need your advice. When you're prosecuting Christians, what is the crime that is usually punished? Are the weakest offenders treated like the stronger? And is any pardon given to any who repent? Is the punishment attached just to the name Christian or for secret crimes? so far emperor i've handled it this way any who were brought to me and accused of being a christian i've asked them directly are you a christian and if they confess i've asked them a second and a third time with threats of punishment if they kept to it i ordered them for execution for if nothing else their unbending stubbornness deserved to be punished then i was sent an anonymous list of people accused of being christians For those who said that they were not Christians, I I thought I should let them go since they recited a prayer to the gods at my dictation and bowed down with incense to your statue. More than that, they cursed Christ, which genuine Christians cannot be made to do. My dear Caesar, I have to say they don't seem to be doing very much wrong. Apart from their illegal meetings, it seems they recite a creed to Christ as God They share a meal together and they vow not to commit any theft or robbery or adultery and not break their word. But the trouble is this contagion of Christian superstition it's spreading. Our temples have almost been deserted and the market for sacrifices has been ruined. But Lord Caesar we can reclaim them if you are happy with my policy of setting them free without punishment when they deny Christ. And that signed your servant Governor Pliny the province of Bithynia the year 112 A.D. The war on Christians was real. For the first century Christians, the original recipients of this book in Revelation, this was not made up. This wasn't a preacher's hyperbole. This wasn't nasty things happening to uh, people on the other side of the world who look different to you. No, this was happening to them, to their families, to their friends. Curse Christ or face execution. And it was as simple as that. For them, the war, it was real. And for these first century Christians, it would have seemed very, very obvious to them who the enemy was. Who was the one causing them all this misery? Well, they would have pointed the finger squarely at Rome, the emperor, the imperial cult. But these visions here in chapters 12 to 14, they're again going to show us, kind of, they're going to take us behind the curtain. They're going to show us actually who the real enemy is, who's really behind it all, because it's important to know who the enemy is. Because behind these first century Christians, behind their persecution, there was, a, there was an enemy much more sinister than the Roman emperor. Behind their persecution was a, a very, very determined enemy who'd been waging war against God's people ever since the beginning of time. And it's an enemy that we need to know about as well, because the enemy described in chapter 12 of Revelation is our enemy as well. He is at war with us as well. So verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. Uh, Now we're going to pause on that opening phrase. It's a phrase that alerts us that what we're about to read is a very significant vision in the context of the book. A great sign. Now a sign is there to tell you something. Signs um, communicate information. But the fact that this one is singled out as a great sign a great and wondrous sign, it's telling us that we're about to see something that's very important in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, the flow of the book of Revelation. Now, there's another clue here that this is a key lesson in the book of Revelation because this phrase, a great sign, it kicks off a, a, a new cycle of sevens. Uh, if you've been paying attention in the last couple of weeks, you'll see that we've been covering a bunch of different sevens. Uh, you might have noticed that in your community group as well. And each time we go through these seven things, they're specifically called out and numbered. Uh, We've had seven letters to seven churches, and then we've had seven seals and seven trumpets. Uh, But that doesn't happen here. There's no deliberate counting down of seven things. But yet, there's still seven visions here. Seven visions scattered throughout chapters 12 to 14. The first vision kicks off here in chapters 12 verses 1, and then they continue on through this. This that vision continues through this chapter, and then chapters 13 and 14, and the beginning of 15. We get another six visions. And every time John sees a new vision, he uses quite a specific phrase, and then I saw, and then you get the next vision, and then I saw, and then you get the next vision. In the original language, it's exactly the same phrase. For some reason, our translations, they obscure a little bit, so it's not so easy to follow them out. But these visions, it's not numbered off like the others were. It's not nearly as obvious. Um, And I think there's a reason why. This is a key pivot in the book of Revelation. It stands out because we're signalling that this is a key section. There is a key lesson on view here, and so we're going to spend most of our time looking at chapter twelve. We may dip a little bit into chapters thirteen and fourteen, uh, but we're going to be in chapter twelve because this is the vision that makes sense of the whole battle that's going to be played out in the rest of Revelation. So, chapter twelve, verse one: A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with feet under, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head she was pregnant and cried out in pain as if as she was about to give birth then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born now that's pretty wild that's pretty crazy stuff, um, but there's kind of three key figures we can see. We've got the pregnant woman, we've got the male child she's about to give birth to, and we've got this enormous red dragon. Um, and I think the fact that it says that this is a sign and a great and wondrous sign, it's inviting. I think the text invites us to think a little bit more specifically about this vision and about who these who these characters might be representing. Uh, so we'll begin with the enormous red dragon. He's clearly the most sinister. Um, who's he supposed to be? Well it's actually pretty obvious. If you're listening during the Bible reading, it tells us in the passage, the great, verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down that ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Okay, that one's pretty easy. The first one, dragon equals Satan. Uh, but we get two names here for the dragon, and they're both names with meanings. Uh, the names actually tell us what he's like. Does anyone know what Andrew means? strong and manly thank you pretty apt right just like i think andrew is an apt name for myself given its meaning the devil that's a pretty apt name for satan the devil means a foul mouthed slanderer that's what that name means that's his name that's his nature He loves to smear people's reputations, loves to cast aspersions about you. There's nothing the devil likes more than bad-mouthing God's people. The second name, Satan. It's related, but it's a little different. Satan means adversary. And it was the word used back then for uh, someone who was in the law courts kind of prosecuting someone. Someone standing in the law court accusing and trying to prove that someone was guilty. And we actually get a picture of him in operation as the Satan, verse 10. Verse 10, he is the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. See, that's Satan. He's there in God's courtroom. He is accusing us. He is pointing the finger. He is slandering us. Uh, He deceives us and then he accuses us before God, uh, trying to convict us uh, for being guilty. Uh, a friend of mine told me about his first week at school. Uh, he was playing in the sandpit uh, with his little mate David Hughes and he thought that they were friends. Uh, now, my friend, uh, he was at this school and there was one important rule. Uh, it was the big rule of the playground. Don't throw stones. It's pretty apt for new entrants. Don't throw stones. Uh, they were playing in the sandpit and David Hughes, the tempter, picked up a couple of rocks and he says to my friend, let's have a competition. Who can throw the stone the furthest? You go first. Now, my friend, he was having such a good time, he wasn't really thinking about the school rules. He was so stoked. He had a friend on his first day of school, so he took the rock and he threw it as far as he could. And you know what happened? The moment the stone left his hand, David turned around and ran straight to the teacher and dobbed him in. David Hughes, the accuser, and he told Mrs. Dawson, who really was a dragon, that my friend had thrown a... My friend had thrown a stone in the school playground and he was in lots of trouble. That's a pretty perfect picture of the way that Satan operates here in Revelation chapter 12. That's exactly what he does. He, he deceives us and then he accuses us before God. He leads you into trouble and then he accuses you for the trouble that you're in. That's the dragon. That's the devil. That's the slanderer. That's his name. That's his nature. The Satan, the accuser, that's his name And that's his nature. I think it's worth us pausing at the moment to think about the worldview that's on offer here in the Bible. We live in a world where we're told there is nothing beyond that which you can see and that you can touch. That the material world is all that exists. But if you read the Bible, it tells us clearly that there are dark forces against God and his people in this world that tempt us and trick us and want nothing more than to bring us down, to stop us from following Jesus. Now, it's actually unusual that we live in a part of the world where the material world is all there is and and, and people don't think that there's something outside of the material world. Most parts of the world acknowledge there is some spiritual realm. Uh, But when you go to work, the conversations you have with people are based on that assumption that this world is all that there is. When you're taught at school or at university, it's all based on that assumption that this world is all that there is, only what you can see and what you can touch. it's worth realizing that Jesus, he lifts our eyes to see that there is more to this world, more than what you can just see and touch. And we need to be aware that there is this dark force against God's people that wants nothing more than for us to give up on following Jesus but back to the text. What about this child here in this vision? <clears throat> Again, it's not too difficult to work out. It's pretty obvious that this child here is Jesus. Uh, take a look at verse 5. That's the big clue. Verse 5, chapter 12, verse 5. Uh, the woman, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Okay, ruling with an iron scepter. Uh, if you, if you want to learn how to uh there's there's two ways you can work stuff out in your bible you can read it so much that you just you hear ruling with an iron scepter and you think ding i've heard that before and you jump back to psalm 2 where that's from or you can do it the other way um i recommend the first which is if you look in chapter 12 verse 5 uh he'll rule the nations with an iron scepter and then in the pew bible there's a little a there next to that and then you jump down to the bottom of the page and it says psalm 2 verse 9 so that's how you can read that uh, Go for option one though, read your Bible so much, you just know that Psalm two verse one. Psalm two or Psalm two verse 9. Psalm two it is all about the Christ. It's all about God's king. It's a psalm that's already been quoted back in Revelation chapter two and it's a quote in reference to Jesus. So it's pretty clear here that the child equals Jesus. Uh, but what about the woman, okay? What about the woman? Things are a little bit more subtle here. Uh, you could look at the woman in this vision and you could say, she's the one who gives birth to the child, which is Jesus. Um, So this is Jesus' mum, and so this must be Mary, right? Um, But when you look a little bit closer, it's probably not Mary. Uh, It's because she's wearing the sun and the moon and the crown of 12 stars. Now, that's a pretty weird little outfit, but uh, it's an echo of the dream that Joseph had. You Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, that Joseph, not Joseph, the (laughs) husband of Mary. Um, it, It references back to the dream that Joseph had in Genesis 37 when he dreamt, Uh, where he had this dream that combined all of those things the sun the moon and 12 stars that's a that's a dream uh, which kind of symbolized his family which is israel the people of god and so this woman is sounding less like mary and sounding more like israel the people of god and so when we put it all together if she is israel and the child is jesus and the dragon is the devil if we put it all together and roll it up the, the vision begins to make more sense to us because now we can see that this vision about satan a vision about satan the enemy of christ and the enemy of his people that's what it is it's a vision about satan the devil the enemy of christ and the enemy of his people and so let's look at the broad outline what actually happens in the vision well in this kind of vivid language you have Christ coming from israel the people of god and and satan is hell-bent on destroying him and he tries to kill jesus but christ is he's taken up into heaven and chase, and it says kind of satan kind of chases him up into heaven and there's no luck for satan there. He is kicked out of heaven and after being kicked out of heaven he now he's now this enraged dragon that goes after the woman but she is protected and so now the dragon enraged even more goes after her offspring now take a look at verse 17 the last verse of chapter 12 Verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's command and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Now, that's the point that would have made a whole lot of sense to those first century Christians, to those for whom Revelation was first written. Remember their context? It's written to Christians who are seeking to obey God's command, to hold to their testimony about Jesus, but they're suffering terrible, terrible persecution at the hands of the roman emperor but here's the thing this vision tells them that their real enemy their real enemy isn't actually rome this vision tells them that their real enemy is satan who stands behind it all the devil is their enemy and it becomes even more clear in chapters thir- in chapter 13 uh, here john sees two beasts um, each of which the dragon uses to make war against the woman's offspring. And it's pretty clear for first century Christians that they represented Rome and the Roman emperor, the Roman religion and and its priests, forcing them to worship the emperor. Uh, But all the time, the message to the churches, to all the churches is, is the same. Behind the trouble that you're going through, Satan stands behind it all. And the vision is to tell the churches that their struggle is not primarily against Rome, Their struggle is not primarily against the powers of this world that seek to oppress them. Their their, their struggle is primarily against Satan and his dark forces in this world. You see, as the Apostle Paul put it to the Ephesians, uh, to the Ephesian church, who is one of these seven churches, uh, Paul wrote this in his letter to them in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul wrote, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what this section is all about. The war is real. If you trust and follow Jesus, there is a war raging against you for you to give up, to stop listening to him, to stop following him, and get in line with the world around you the war is real and we need to know that and we need to know who the enemy is your struggle is not against rome your struggle is not against the beastly powers of this age that use their power to oppress christians and other people your struggle is against the devil and his constant temptation for you to give up on following jesus you see we're caught up in this struggle. Did you see yourself in this passage? Do you, did you did you recognize where you fall? Did you see yourself in chapter 12 verse 17 verse 17? Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's command and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Are you seeking to obey God's command? Are you seeking to hold fast to your testimony about Jesus? well if you're a follower of jesus that's you that's you there in that verse that's where you fit in and sure our experience is not exactly the same as these first century christians who are being dragged before um, governor pliny and being told to worship a statue of the emperor but nevertheless it's a it's a vision that alerts us the fact that we're actually locked in this same struggle against the ancient serpent called the devil called satan and so it's no accident that when you sit down to pray or to read your Bible, there are a million other things that pop into your head that you think you should be doing right now instead of the thing that you've tried to do. That's not an accident. There's no accident that the night that community group is on, that's when you feel most tired and run down and you can think of a million and one other reasons why you should be doing everything else but going to meet with God's people. There's no accident that when your life is going well, you still find yourself wrestling with the same temptations over and over again. You just can't seem to get rid of them anymore. None of this is an accident. If you're a follower of Jesus, chapter 12 of Revelation says that there are forces of evil that hate you and they want to see you go down. This dragon, it is enraged and it's gone off to make war against the followers of Jesus. We don't like talking about war. It's uncomfortable. It's a long way from the kind of Jesus is my boyfriend Christianity that we love. But we are at war. Whether we like it or not, there is an enemy out there who is hell-bent on destroying your faith in Jesus. And you don't get to choose whether you go to war when the war comes to you. He is waging war against us. He has made us his enemies. And he will do all that he can to take us down with him. Now that's that's sobering. But we need to see that this dragon, even though he he is enraged, he is making war against God and his people. We need to see that he actually has been conquered. He has been conquered. For the big point of this vision is not just to know who your enemy is, but to know that the enemy has already been defeated. Uh, Kind of that lesson hits its strides in chapter 14. But here we get a glimpse in the vision uh, of the Lamb of... Sorry, in chapter 14, we get a, a vision of the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion declaring that he has conquered the Satan. But we see it also in chapter 12. Come back to chapter 12, verse 7 chapter 12 verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, against, fought back, but he was not strong enough. They lost their place in heaven and that great dragon was hurled down. Now picture it, a massive battle is going on in heaven and the dragon's not strong enough. He's thrown out of heaven. Uh, and in this picture, the fact kind of, and this is a picture of the fact that in the place that matters most, In the realm that matters most, in heaven before God, the battle has actually already been finished. The line of Judah has triumphed. Here in heaven, the devil has already been defeated. And how was he defeated? Well, it's explained for us in uh, verses 10 and 11. But look at verse 11. See how he's defeated. Here's how the devil gets beaten. Chapter 12, verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, this is a critical verse. Satan, the accuser, has been knocked out of heaven. He has no power before God whatsoever. And how has that happened? What's well, it's happened by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, Satan has been stripped of his power. He has been ultimately defeated through the death of Jesus. And by people who testified to the death of Jesus, and that makes complete sense. Remember, that makes it makes complete sense of what we've discovered about the enemy. If he is, if he is the devil, the slanderer, if he is the Satan, the accuser, he's the one who points his finger at you and says how bad you are. He says to you, he says to God, you can't let them in. I know Andrew Southerton. I know what he thinks about. I know what he's done. He's guilty. He can't come up here to be with you, a holy God. But the fact that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the fact that we saw in chapter four, that the lion of Judah was the lamb who was slain, the fact that he stood in for us, he took our place, that he took our death, the punishment for our sins, it totally cuts the legs from under Satan. He can accuse you until he is blue in the face, but it makes no difference. Because when you trust in jesus your punishment has been taken you are forgiven you're wiped clean the accuser has nothing to say against you anymore and all we have to do is to stand firm in the victory that jesus has won for us stand firm on the truth of the gospel and satan cannot get you anymore Are you beginning to see why this chapter is a great and wondrous sign? Are you beginning to see how this is so crucial in the context of the whole book of Revelation? Are you beginning to see that this is a vision about Jesus and reveals what's so important about knowing Jesus? You see, John, he's writing to first century Christians who are being heavily persecuted by Rome for following Jesus. They're persecuted in a way that's trying to make them disloyal to Jesus. But God is showing them their real enemy. It's not Rome. And it's Satan. And the enemy has no other desire than to get them to stop following Jesus. And so this vision is good news for them. Despite the pressure of Rome, their enemy has been defeated. Defeated through the blood of the Lamb. Which means that the worst thing you could do, the absolute worst, would be to not stay loyal to the Lamb. Not stay loyal to Jesus who is already victorious. And so the thing that we must do is hold firm to our testimony of the Lamb, our testimony of Jesus, our faith in Jesus. Because that is what has defeated Satan. And even though Satan is ultimately defeated, it doesn't mean that he's not dangerous. It doesn't mean that he's not trying to inflict harm on Christians. Verse 12, it says, He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. But in this short time, there is still that war raging, not to achieve victory because he's already been defeated, but it's a war raging as he, as he tries to lure and entice and scare us away from the winning side as Satan throws everything he can at the offspring of the woman so as to drive a wedge between them and the lamb. And so here in Revelation, John is calling the churches to arms. He says, guys, you know there is a war going on. Know your enemy." know he has been defeated stand firm do not love your lives or this world so much as to shrink from your testimony it's a great word for the seven churches of asia and it's a great word for us as well open your eyes to the war know your enemy know especially that he has been defeated so hold fast to jesus But you might be thinking, really? Is that really what's going on in our world? Is that, I mean, first century, they're all so superstitious and stuff. Is there, are you really trying to tell me there is a war going on? It's a bit dramatic. It's a bit over the top. But I want to be honest with you. This is not some preacher's trick. This is not some rhetorical flourish I came up with this week, some hyperbole to get your attention to send a shiver down your spine. As John received this vision, as he gets a glimpse behind the curtain, as he sees ultimate reality, this is what he sees. If you're a follower of Jesus, there are evil forces in this world that are at war with you. Enraged that they have been defeated, filled with fury because their time is short, and they're hell bent on taking as many people down with them as possible. But the fact is that every time you hold firm to Jesus, every time you share the good news with Jesus, and someone comes to put their faith in Jesus, that is another victory. The fact is that when you're telling people about Jesus, when you're sharing your faith, when you continue to obey God's word, when you continue to hold fast your testimony about Jesus, you are caught up in that spiritual battle. You are taking on the devil. And the good thing is that's a weapon that works. Now, there's some people who, they, they, they see stuff like this, like chapter 12, and they get all excited. and They start talking about kind of devils having footholds and kind of people exercising things and there's special prayers that you can pray that defeat certain certain devils and if you hold your Bible a certain way and kind of stand this way to the wind and kind of the, the, the devil can't get you, that's, that's, that's rubbish. What John says is hold your testimony about Jesus. Obey God's commands. That is what defeats Satan. There is no special trick to learn but to keep trusting and following Jesus. Uh, back in the year 110 AD, About 20 uh, years after these words were written, about the same time as that first letter that I read, uh, there was a Christian called Justin and he wrote these words. No one makes us afraid. For though we Christians are beheaded, he said, and crucified and exposed to beasts and chains and fire and other forms of torture, it is plain that we do not forsake the confession of our faith. But the more things like this happen to us, he says, so much more there are many others who become believers through the name of jesus just as when you cut away the parts of a vine that have borne fruit it bursts into flowers so it is with us we live in fearsome times Um, christians in a sense have always lived in fearsome times where the devil has been thrown out of heaven and still slashes around with his tail trying to bring destruction Especially is trying to stop us from sharing the good news about Jesus. That God's mercy is freely available. That his defeat has been secured through the blood of the Lamb. Have you ever thought that every time you tell someone that God loves them and that Jesus died for them and has paid the penalty for their sin, you're, you're, declaring, you're declaring Satan's defeat. It's no wonder he hates that. You're declaring to them that though the accuser will slander them and though he will accuse them before God, there is no accusation anymore if they trust and follow in Jesus. God's mercy is freely available in the blood of the Lamb. So whatever you do, do not forsake the confession of your faith. Live it, talk it, spread it. Because what the devil really hates is the gospel because it is not good news for him the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. It's the news of his defeat. And what further compounds that defeat is Christians like you and me remaining faithful, telling others about Jesus, even in the face of fear and in the face of death or in our case, in the face of minor embarrassment because that is the only thing that brings his kingdom and his rule undone and further extends the kingdom of the Lamb, the one who was slain. Will you pray with me?
1: Now, Heavenly Father,
0: we thank you that though we are engaged in a war, victory is certain because Jesus has died for us. If we trust and follow in you, there is nothing the devil can accuse us of. There's nothing he can hold against us because we're forgiven. We're wiped clean. His destruction is assured. Help us to remain faithful to that. Help us to share that. Help us to be aware of who our enemy is and that he really has been defeated. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.